Hey, Queeros, Cami here. So many of you have already joined the Patreon, the new Query Patreon. You can find it at patreon.com slash heyqueeros. What does it do? Well, number one, it helps you contribute to your favorite podcast, which I definitely assume is this one. And second of all, it gives you access to a bunch of exclusive stuff, merch, a chance to hang out with Sierra and I. You also get access to the listener call-in podcast, Hey Queeros. It's a bit of an AMA. You can ask me anything. You can tell me about your life. Call in with those questions because I would like to know more about my community. And I think that y'all would like to know each other. This is an idea that I had coming off of doing a bunch of those um, queer memoir panels on Zoom. And then I have been invited to book clubs, to uh, Slack groups, Discord. I don't know what the words are. But anyway. Y'all have kept the community going. And so this is another way that you can participate. We would love to have you call in, ask a question on Hey Queeros. You can do this either by calling 904-8-QUERY. That's 904-878-3379 and leaving a voicemail. Or you can record your question as a voice memo and email it as an attachment to heyqueeros at gmail.com. That's H-E-Y-Q-U-E-E-R. OES at gmail.com. Thanks for joining up and supporting the show. All the rest of the info you need is at patreon.com slash heyqueeros. This is a show about individual experience and personal identity. There may be times when folks use identifying words or phrases that don't feel right to you. That's part of what we're exploring here. Please listen with an open heart. And as always, I welcome your polite, engaged feedback. And I encourage you to continue the conversation in your own life and with your own community. Welcome to Query. Hey, Queeros, Cami here. This week's episode of the podcast is a chat with Swedish painter Juan Youssef. Also, this chat is fucking awesome. This person is such a sweetheart and has great vibes and had a lot to say about art and life and also happens to be married to Ricky Martin. Who gives a shit? Well, I think probably he does and also Ricky. I think they're probably invested in that relationship. But I say it because this person has so much to say about um, relationships and self-confidence and I just loved him. I hope you enjoy this episode. I always have guests introduce themselves. Will you introduce yourself? Yeah, um, I am. I'm a husband and a father of of two gorgeous little babies and a stepfather of two beautiful twin boys. Um, I'm also uh, an immigrant from Syria, and in a way, I've been uh, an immigrant throughout my whole kind of grown up um, life. Um, my art practice also kind of. Uh, kind of circles around the kind of exploring of the idea of of belonging and and not belonging and in a way what that kind of means when when you don't necessarily fit in one box i think pretty much it's a beautiful that. intro it is a beautiful intro um i well i want i think i want to start by asking you when you emigrated to the u.s so i was Two years old when we when my family left for Syria. I have two older siblings, uh, and it was actually it was, it was a pretty crazy story from my parents' perspective. I mean, my parents uh, come from two very like different uh, backgrounds. My mother was a Christian Armenian woman. Uh, my father was a Kurdish Muslim uh, man, and they they also they came from two kind of well known families up in northern northeastern Syria. Um, and they well known uh, how well well they they were you know I think for generations um, just known I mean my 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 grandfather was a big landowner in Syria and, and my mother came from uh, in a way maybe more like a more influential family um, from the same town they met in military school when they were young and they fell in love. Uh, which was also like a, a huge taboo back in the 60s. I mean, this is like our version of interracial kind of a 
affair. Yeah. It was it was completely super frowned upon. And the um, meeting in military school, would it have been standard for them to be in military school? Uh, it wasn't standard. It was it was it was it was like a mixed school and and mm-hmm. I think I think they were they were put in it at the time and and it was both the men and women in the same class. So it was like it was it was in a way a uh, uh, I mean, I would say maybe more of an open-minded school even though it's military mm-hmm. school. Uh, but they fell in love, uh, and they wouldn't have it any other way. So they eloped, they escaped to Iraq, they married in secret, and it was kind of a huge scandal for their families. Um, so when they came back to Syria, they had my brother, my sister, and me, and within that process of kind of regaining their life back in Syria, they also realized that life for us, I mean, the children in a way would be tougher. Um, and with that, uh, they decided to to kind of leave the country. Um, and we emigrated to Sweden because I also had my great-grandmother there. And we went there. I mean, they kind of took us there for, for the sake of our kind of future, uh, also knowing that it is, it is, it's not an easy thing growing up being both Christian and Muslim in, in a country like Syria, especially at that time also. Um so, I mean, in, in, from my family's point of view, I mean, I guess it's a very romantic and nice story. It was also like a very uh, kind of devastating element to it also for their families, but also for my parents' relationship to their families. So we came to Sweden in 86, and it was kind of like the golden era of like liberal socialist Sweden. And, uh, and there was plenty of opportunities and there was, there was yeah, yeah, I mean, great chances for us as children to also kind of grow. Um, and that's, that's, that's kind of like how we, how we ended up in Sweden, I think. And so that's where you spent like your, your childhood and sort of teenagehood in Sweden? Totally. Yeah. So I, we grew up in, we moved to Stockholm and we, I grew up in, in like Sweden's most like renowned ghetto called Tionsta. And every time I'm like, I'm from the ghetto in Stockholm, people are like, yeah, whatever, like sit down kind of thing, you know, <laughs> it's like, <laughs> you kind of think that there's no real like proper ghettos, but, but it was, I mean, also as a kid, when you kind of, when you're raised in a ghetto, I mean, you look at it from like a, a, a child's eyes. I mean, I had the best time growing up where we did and we had great friends and great neighbors. And there was also like a good kind of Syrian community for my parents to also kind of, um, get involved with, which was great for them and also good for us to be a little bit in touch with Arabs in, in a foreign country. Um, right. I mean, I want to even ask a question about that because mm. I, I'm trying to think if I've been to Sweden. I don't think I've been to Sweden. No? <laughs> so I'm basing this on like essentially postcards. Okay. <laughs> um, but I, because I have no idea like how you would maybe look versus people in Sweden or like are there other... Muslim people there? Like, what's the vibe? I think of Sweden and I think of blonde-haired people. Like, that's what I think of. And I I don't know, you know, if you felt a vibe of fitting in or was there a vibe of, like, looking markedly different and having different religious practices? I mean, it's, 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 uh, it's, uh, it's, um, it's interesting. I mean, when, I think when I grew up in Sweden, I had the whole ghetto experience, but then also I kind of moved into when I, did, when I went to high school, I kind of moved into like kind of like a, a great school in the middle of town with like virtually only Swedes. I mean, there were like five immigrant looking kids out of a thousand and four mm-hmm. of them were adopted. So like, I was virtually the only oh, wow. kind of like proper immigrant there. I never really thought of being dark in a way, because also we assimilated pretty well early on. My parents were very keen on having us just kind of assimilate quickly. Um, but it wasn't until I left Sweden where, when I realized exactly what you're describing, like, oh damn, like people are so white and I'm virtually black. And it took me like 25 years to realize that kind of <laughs> like coming back to Sweden because I left for London when I was 25 and, and I, I kind of arrived thinking I was a Swedish person. I mean, it's uh, my whole life experience virtually has been only Sweden. We almost never went back to Syria. Uh, so every time, like my first month in London, I, they were like, where are you from? And I was like, Sweden. And they just kind of looked at me going like, dude, you're not Swedish. Like, where are you really from? And I'm like, I am from Syria, uh, but also I've grown up in Sweden my whole life. 
So it's, it's um, I mean, there's a lot of duality in that. I think, I think I've been more in touch with my Syrian heritage since I left Sweden than I was when I was living in Sweden. And, hmm. and it's also in a way a very similar experience when the few times we visited Syria is that, again, I was kind of an immigrant, like an inception immigrant going back to Syria. Like they looked at me as like not an Arab. I was a Swedish person visiting my homeland right. kind of thing. So, so I think that state of constantly not, yeah, I mean, pretty much not, I mean, I wouldn't say not belonging, but like it's, 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 you can see the boxes and you can see that you fit, but you can also, you also know that you, you you're not really part of that. Um, yeah. And, and I think it's that kind of state, that kind of grayscale when you are, yeah, I mean, I'm very much Syrian and then I'm very much Swedish. I mean, I think, I think I'm, I think I can be rational and calm like a Swede. And then when I, when I, argue or make love i'm like an arab you know it's just like it's it's <laughs> it's like those kind of two aspects of being that also come very handy <laughs> <laughs> well you know i also think about what you're talking about because i think some of what you're alluding to are like archetypes so it's not necessarily that you wouldn't have a place or that like you know that everybody be constantly pointing at you but when you don't match the archetype of the thing that's an experience that i also know many people have in the u.s you know yeah. like just um i mean i think skin color wise racial identity wise i match the archetype of the you know american person but then i have this haircut so that yeah. puts me in a different <laughs> category yeah. but but um i think there's probably a lot of people who grew up in the u.s maybe from an immigrant family or 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 maybe from an a family that were not an immigrant family but they're you know a BIPOC family, they're uh, an indigenous family, they're black family, you know, and anytime anybody grows up, I think about like the, you know, the one black family in the all white neighborhood in the U.S. having yeah. essentially a very similar experience to what you're talking about. Yeah. Because um, I think that absolutely happens here too. And so when, so you're in your, in Sweden, you're having that experience. And then when did the U.S. come into your life? It came later on. I mean, I, I came, I came out to the U S almost five years ago now. I mean, maybe a little less four or five years ago. Um, I had, uh, met my husband in London when I was living there. So I was in London for seven years prior to America. Uh, and I was working there. I'd studied there. So America was never really, uh, part of my kind of plan. I mean, I sat with, with my husband now, uh, with my now husband and we kind of thought like, where would we want, we, we want to live together. And we kind of, you know, we had like the different options and we thought London, and then we kind of spent two minutes looking at homes in London. We thought, you know what, we can't afford being like living here. This is not going to work. Like <laughs> even London's like too expensive for like anybody. Uh, and I, I mean, I know that, that is like, proper fascinating experience. to hear. I would like to, I would but keep going, but I'm going to loop back to the fact that you just said that gives me a hilarious amount of context. Yes. But yeah. So then you thought, you know, you, you thought about London, London was in yeah. the and also, I mean, the thing is we wanted to, we wanted like a complete kind of clean slate. We wanted to just kind of create something together that we haven't oh, experienced sure. at all. I mean, that, that was also part of our thing. I mean, my, my husband had, had a home in New York and he's from Puerto Rico. So, so we, we kind of, uh, we kind of thought like, well, you know what, let's, let's try something else. I thought like, I'm not really too keen on moving to New York from like one humongously busy city to another. Uh, you know, we, we, were, we had kids and we were planning on kids already then. I mean, we were talking about it. Uh, and then he kind of dropped LA and I thought, wow, okay, you know what? I've never been, I've never driven a car in my life. I feel like this is the last place ever <laughs> I, I would ever want to go to. And, and we, we said, listen, let's do this. Let's go for a month and try it out. And I, I tell you, Cameron, I mean, it was like, it was one month. And when we were going to leave LA, I just had stomach pains. I just thought, I don't want to leave this place it's magical i'm so glad uh, you found some somewhere you love it was you know? so strange I'm really, really happy for you yeah. yeah i mean it was it was also like i mean all odds against against it in a way i mean i i'm i'm i've 
been in urban cold cities my whole life. I mean, I've never really, <laughs> I've never, I, I, I kind of discovered this oh, yellow thing too. in the sky for the first time five <laughs> years ago. And I'm like, it's wow, sunshine, that's great. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, I mean, there were a lot of things that were like happening uh, that also, uh, yeah, totally got me in the mood for LA, but also like there, there's like a, an extreme renaissance of, of, of art and art world kind of moving out to LA that's been going on for less than a decade now of what I'm understanding. But, uh, and you, it was so noticeable. I mean, I, I feel like we arrived to LA and I was just like, I see my people here. This is art and this is art world. And this is a lot of people I know back from London that have in a way kind of come out to LA because there's so much, so much, um, there's a huge movement of art going on here. And, Ricky loved it and I loved it. And I just thought, wow, this, there's, there's like a big opportunity to not just like be part of an art community, but also in a way kind of develop it because it's, it's still so young. Um, so, I mean, I don't know what LA was before, but I feel like the, the moment we landed, it was just like in par with everything we felt and needed. And, and I was tripping. I was just like, this is great. And also I got to learn how to drive a car. And <laughs> it's been four years yeah. now. I still don't drive a car. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to, I want to cover something that I think we have to talk about at some point, but then I, I have a specific angle on it that relates to what you're just talking about. So, you know, your your husband is a visible person mm -hmm. um, in the world. Yeah. Um, you're, you're, I mean, I don't even, I feel like it's like, I don't, tell me how you met your husband. Tell me who your husband is. It was, it was like no. the most Jane Austen moment ever. It was, it was really like, it was really, it was probably more platonic and romantic than you would imagine of today. I mean, he, he DM'd me on Instagram after seeing my work and he, he kind of wrote like this piece, this piece is fantastic. Like I would love to know more. And I just thought, could this, is this really, what, is this a joke kind of thing? Yeah. And, and from that, we just, we started um, chatting and talking and we spoke for nearly six months and it was like six months of talking of art and music and, like nothing sexual. Like it was the weirdest thing when you're talking to the sexiest man alive and you're just like not even going that route. And we met in London. He was doing the Royal Variety Show. This is six months after we first spoke. And he came and I remember him popping out of the car and I looked him in the eyes and I thought, wow, this is it was just like a slap in the face. And I was standing there in my studio clothes, like straight from the studio with paint all over my clothes. Like better. Looking, that's looking, better. Looking that's better like than shit. any alternative. That's and the I, answer. And that's, thought, that's, that's very good. I'm actually, no. I'm sold on that being what you're wearing. Never change. Like when you go back in time, don't ever change that. That's perfect. Maybe not. But my only thought was like, shit, man, you should have put a jacket on. Like just anything. <laughs> like, just. No, no, I don't think so. Yeah. And, and I just, I dragged him to like a local pub and we sat down and we didn't stop talking for like four hours and, and we spoke about everything. And then we met again and, you know, fast forward a few months, it was just, it was really kind of happening. Like, you know, he would fly, fly over and then I would fly over to see him. Um, and then within a few months I was kind of like introduced to the kids. So, uh, but I mean, wow. I, I think at that point we were, I mean, we had seen each other kind of on and off for a few months. So I love that story. It was, I mean, it's, it's looking back at it. I'm still like extremely grateful for how we kind of happened. I don't think we would ever happen if it wasn't through that kind of really getting to know each other process without also having any form of expectations. I don't think any of us thought we're going to have and raise a family together. I mean, I don't think it was in our minds whatsoever until we met. And I think that was probably, I mean, I would say I'm not a very romantic person. I mean, I'm not like the kind of guy that's that like sits in dreams of, I mean, I never thought I would marry in my life. Also not necessarily because I don't believe a gay man can marry, but more so I don't, understand why anybody should have to marry. I mean, it's, it's, mm -hmm. I also come from a family. I mean, my sister who's straight and my brother who's straight. I mean, they, they also, you know, they're from the same kind of belief. I mean, we grew up in a very liberal country where you're also like, you prove your love by being with each other. But 
I think when I met Ricky, it was also this thing of like, no, this is, this is kind of bigger than me or bigger what I th thought I thought kind of thing. It kind of took over. And I, I had so much respect for that feeling because I felt so small for almost a, a kind of destiny, uh, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. I mean, I think the reason that, so the person that you're talking about is Ricky Martin. And I'm yeah, mentioning yeah. that because I think that, I think that adds context to when you're talking about speaking on Instagram and why that would be impactful. I could imagine like, I don't know this human, but I will say that I probably, you know, have, uh, one, you know, one millionth of a percent of the like visibility, uh, or attention that that human has. And, and it is very difficult to, um, understand who you should have romantic relationships with, who you should be friends with and how to pursue that because there's a comp, there's always a complicated, it's always complicated when somebody knows more about some parts of you than you know about them. You know, if you're somebody who's in the public eye, you just have this, um, people are always walking into expectations of you or you're, you're always walking into other people's expectations of you. So, I mean, I, I think it makes a lot of sense to me why that is your story, because that sounds like, to me, that sounds like, well, that's, that seems like a reasonable way to do it where you could build trust. Um, because there's not necessarily something that somebody's benefiting from outside of just conversation. I think that's really beautiful. And part of the reason I wanted to also give this context is because when you were talking about moving to LA, I was thinking for you, you know, um, I didn't realize you had started together in a new city. And I was thinking for you about the thing I'm just talking about, trying to make friends, trying to create community, trying to figure out which galleries to have relationships with, all of that stuff. When you come in to that situation and the person that you're married to is somebody who's so visible like that. What was that like for you? I mean, did you feel like, how did you feel? I mean, there's a lot of duality in that. It's, it's, I think, I think the strength in also feeling, I think it's important to be confident of what you do. I mean, it's easy to be engulfed by somebody else's, uh, fame or line of work. Uh, but I'm also convinced that this really famous person also fell in love with a guy that he was kind of equally impressed with. Um, I don't think he met a guy that was just, you know, hot and funny and, and witty or whatever. It was, uh, there was a lot more depth to it. And I think that's also where this kind of like six month conversation before we ever met kind of laid mm -hmm. the foundation to understanding that. And I think knowing that and, and also the reason I am also with my husband is that we have this like wonderful mutual respect and understanding and support for each other's practices. I mean, in the end, we're both in the arts, but he's in a very, very different um, art form and in a way more of a pop culture. I mean, it is pop culture and I work in a, in a fine art environment and in a way they can sometimes kind of get fused together. I mean, it happens, but it's yeah. also very opposite poles. Um, right. and, and, you know, finding your own path. I mean, I think, I think I, I, you know, I take comfort in also having almost like 10 years of, of being an artist and, and doing my thing and exhibiting around the world. And, and there's already a foundation of that, that gives me, um, that kind of gives me belief in what I do. And, and also, uh, and for him to also believe in me, which is, I think equally important, but yeah, I mean, you maneuver it around, is. you maneuver around a lot of, a lot of different kind of intentions from people. I mean, there are obviously people also that kind of look at you as only the husband of someone. And there are also people yeah. that look at you as like, Oh, it's a little bit complicated. You are married with this person because it might not be in par with our program. So, I mean, it's, you get the whole spectrum of it. I mean, the art world can be super fun when you're in it, but it's also one of those, um, really tough environments where, where, again, I mean, when we're talking about, about belonging, it's, it's a very tough world to, to attempt to belong to. I mean, thankfully I've been, I've been in, I did seven years of art college at Kunstfak in Stockholm, which was a top, top school. And then I went to Central St. Martin's in London, which was again, a great school. So, I mean, I feel like I was already engulfed in the art world way before. So, um, but totally, I mean, you also know, you notice like, 
anything, friends, family. I mean, you see, you see people real relate differently to you also because of this immediate and sudden, uh, fame. But I think the thing that keeps us the most sane or myself is also understanding and knowing from the beginning that this is not my fame. It is, it is someone else's fame. And, and I, I would never ever think of claiming it, uh, or assume that I'm entitled to it. So I think, I think that's also, it's, it's just about rhyme and reason in the end. We are two men madly in love. We have tons of kids and, and the reality <laughs> is, you know, I was more nervous about meeting the stepkids than I was meeting my husband. I mean, it's, 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 uh, it comes down to really basic things in the end. I think, I think. Yeah, that is, that is very basic. I mean, that to me, that just sounds like the answer for like, it sounds like the answer for anybody that's trying to figure out how to, um, merge. Well, maybe I'll say it a different way. You know, I, I'm, I'm a divorced person. And previously I was in a relationship where we had a lot of overlapping work interests and that really worked for me at the time. Like, I don't look back at it and go, what a fucking mistake. Like it was, it was, I made that choice. And, you know, I think we make choices because that's what needs to happen next, you know, whether, but I, I also, um, when that marriage ended and I was trying to figure out like what romance could look for me, could look like for me in the future. What I realized is that, um, you know, I really needed to have my own whole thing, like my own whole thing, set of friends, you know, job experience. But I think that sometimes as queer people, that is very confusing because like, I think if, you know, from the outside only, but looking at straight relationships, it's like the divisions seems so much more enforced by culture, right? Like there's like guys night and then there's like, you know, yeah. bridesmaids or whatever the heck I'm even talking about. And it's culturally enforced. So you shouldn't have the same set of friends unless you're, you know, the cast of friends. Like, and you shouldn't hang out together all the time. Like you should have separate interests and you shouldn't necessarily work together. You should have separate jobs and probably the dude should work and like the woman should stay home. I mean, you know, whatever it is, but there's a whole set of things. And I think for us, and specifically thinking about marriage, it's like the stuff that you just laid out, it's like, that's not something that we, I think, as a, as a queer culture talk about a lot, or we're just starting to, because we just, you know, um, are waiting, you know, in the waters from like, okay, well, what does marriage look like if that's legal? What does partnership look like where we're not being married? Who are my friends versus your friends? I think it just can get very mixed up. I know I've struggled with for myself to figure out okay, just because we could be each other's best friends. Like, it also may be as great if we're not. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I totally hear you and I super agree. I, I mean, I think, I think there's also like an incredible opportunity in that. I mean, we have, I think the luxury, the one luxury we have of also being gay or standing outside of this norm is that we can actually kind of curate it as, as, as much as we want. I mean, it's, I think, I think, I think we also see any kind of different fates within our gay community, uh, where people really, you know, try to, to create their own path. And I think it's, it's, I think that's the best thing we can ever have is that we don't have this kind of forced norm, even though we sometimes want it, that is your path to choose. I mean, I am a married man. I have kids. I mean, outwardly, it seems like I'm the most conservative person alive. Mm. But at the same time, it, it, it's all hyper-related. I am also half Muslim, Arab man. The fact that I'm married is in itself a revolution. I mean, it's it's um, you can look at it from so many points of views that are also... Um, a little bit of outside of our, our zone or comfort zone, which I think is important to think. And I think, um, yeah, I mean, it's not an easy thing. You want to claim your own friends sometimes, or you want to claim <laughs> his friends sometimes. And most of the times yeah. you end up sharing friends. And in the end, if you break up, it's a horrible thing because you want to keep your friends for yourself. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's in all fairness, I think it's a nice problem to have. I would love to share my friends with my husband. I, in a way I'd love to share my existence and my, my practice and my art world. And I mean, we've offered each other so many ways of looking 
at life so far, and we've barely started in a way. And I think I think that's a great thing. I'm not saying it's an easy thing, but it is great. I hate the idea of, you know, a wife going out having girls night and doing her thing. And then a <laughs> husband goes out and gets, you know, fucked up and goes back home, you know, half dead. Yeah, I mean, he is always yeah. getting fucked up. You're right. Yeah, that's part I mean, of it. Yeah. <laughs> that's always part of the story. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, it's, it's sure. I mean, maybe that's nice, but also I don't, I don't necessarily think that is, that is my ideal situation. I love that, you know, that Ricky kind of loves my friends and I love his friends and, I think I think it's like a great thing to be able to share. Also, it's not always what you want. I mean, there are times where I'm just like, let me just go see my fucking friend. I want to chill. Whatever. I mean, it can it can be whatever you want. Um, but I hear you. I th- but I still think it's a good problem to have. I mean, I think yeah. it's just it's just part of of many things you kind of. Uh, I would like to say you're entitled to do in in being in in being gay. I mean, it's it's there. There's there's like a I mean, there's there's a lot in it. Well, there's two. There's a there's a fork in the road here. I'm trying to think of which way I'm going to steer the conversation. <laughs> I think I'm going to talk about. Actually, no. I'm going to say this, which is like. You just, you seem very self-possessed and you seem very confident. And so I feel like there, you know, I know I could benefit. And I wonder if there are some listeners who could benefit from talking about like, so I think there's also a specificity in queer relationships where we're compared to each other. And that's not necessarily something that like, you know, we just don't, we don't do that with straight relationships. I guess we, I guess we talk about like whether or not everybody's hot, as hot as each other. Like, oh, you know, they married up or they're dating, you know, down, whatever it is. I guess we talk about that. But in queer relationships, it's, it's so much more direct, right? Yeah. And totally. especially being married to somebody who I think is very praised for their like physical beauty, their physical appearance. I'm wondering like how you navigate that, what you talk to yourself about, because I just think that could be very helpful. I mean, I know I feel oftentimes like in my life that I have been comparing myself against the person I'm with. And I wonder how you deal with that. Totally. I mean, it's, 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 it's a very kind of valid question when you're like literally married to like possibly officially the most gorgeous man alive in a way. (laughs) I mean, it's, 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 um, I mean, here's the thing. I mean, I, I, I always kind of think of it as this one thing. I mean, I come into this person's life and we are, um, you know, we are both sane people, but also like you say, I mean, there's going to be a lot of projection going like this guy might be hotter or this guy might be sexier or, or whatever. But the fact is also, you know, my husband has a career on virtually being a heartthrob. Um, and, I mean, I can do nothing but appreciate that. It's it's also, it's one of, it's, I mean, what can I say? I feel the same way every other kind of person would feel about him. I would also, I would That's also for cute. my personal self, never, never compare my, my kind of looks with him. I mean, to tell you the truth, I mean, I was, a, I was, a, I was a gorgeous baby. I was an ugly inf- like child. I was an ugly teenager. I like everything was wrong. I had a huge nose. I had huge ears. I was, a, I was skinny as hell. I mean, I went through the phase of like, dude, you got to fucking create a personality because you ain't going to get nowhere with these looks. <laughs> like it was just, it was just this also thing where I was kind of forced into the situation of like, get smart, get brilliant, get funny, uh, and work with that. And then, you know, you're, I did. I, I was kind of forced to do military service, more or less, um, after high school, which was terrible. It was like the worst experience of my life, um, but also like a good one because it also kind of it kind of um, beefed me up and kind of gave me this like different mentality of like, wait, you can be everything you've been doing. Like you can be bright and brilliant and nice and kind and and open minded, but also look, shit, these muscles kind of grew on you and your face kind of like finally finally after 20 years settled so like it was it was i've never i've never leaned back on on good looks it's never been my it's never been my core ever um and i still take it with me every day i mean it's it's um it might be different now 
but I, I, you know, I think, I think if, if anything, I think my confidence will, will kind of rest on, on more of my accomplishments and, and kind of, you know, what I, what I think I can do and what I think I can kind of, um, bring to the table rather than like, I think my husband is prettier than me. I also genuinely believe that. I mean, it's not something I don't think. I'm not going to say oh, I don't, like... Oh, I don't necessarily think we need to agree that that's true, no, by the I mean, way. Maybe, I maybe don't... not, but it's, that's my personal kind of thing. I mean, yeah, that can be your I, opinion. And, and, yes, and, of course. And so I would probably agree with like most beliefs. I mean, I'm, I'm mm. also in love with him for the person he is, but also I'm very lucky that, you know, I get to wake up with a guy that looks as good on stage as he does in bed, which is wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't know if that answered anything, but yeah, it did. Yeah, I mean, it did. I think that I'll tell you something I'm I'm working on is I think I think for me I had sort of a goony phase of looking when I was younger, and I um, shifted my value over to my accomplishments and like really tried to achieve. And something that I've just been working on in like the last two years is shifting away from like, I mean, this is just, this is just to say it's, this is, this is, I'm, I'm just contemplating this. We don't know if it'll ever happen, but like, what if my value was not based in how I look also not based in what I do. And that is something that I have been trying to wrestle with is like, wait, what if my value is just inherent and I don't have to work on it? Because I think that's something that I ended up doing because I got like so into this vibe of like, okay, well, I can prove that I'm, you know, I've just been working on trying to um, rest assured, like to spend more time resting and feeling assured of myself. And um so I relate to everything you're saying. And then I also, I hear some of the calm, you know, in your voice. It seems like you're very, um, but, but sure I mean, it's, it's also, I mean, you, you, you go into like a very good direction. Else. I mean, we're stuck in a pandemic. We're like stuck mm. with also having the opportunity. I see opportunity of not working at all. I mean, it's, it's, we're kind of like stuck with not doing or providing anything. So like, if you're not happy with yourself in that state, I mean, then you're probably pretty fucked. But it's, <laughs> it's also, it's, I mean, the first three months of this period, I mean, both me and Ricky, we just did nothing. We thought, you know what, let's just, let's, let's just then do nothing. Let's just sit down and not work and not produce. And, and I mean, Cameron, I tell you, it was great. I mean, it was, it was a really great pause, uh, which was necessary. And then from that kind of void, we just thought, you know what, it's it's time to slowly kind of get back into working, even though I can't put up a show or even though if I produce work now, you know, there's no there's no there's nothing in sight of what I can do with it, uh, but make plans. So, I mean, it's it's um, it's a, it's like a forced kind of sense of like just being trying to be happy with yourself. I mean, mm. I think also there's the reality is probably a lot of people can't stand themselves. And, and I think, I think that's also a good, that can be a great lesson for most people that maybe would never discover that. And, and it's kind of important to just do all that work. So I hear you. I mean, it's also like, you could also skip all the accomplishments and skip the looks and skip the ambitions. And then just like, what do you have? And I think what you have then is like a, a liberal socialist regime. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> sure. Absolutely. Yeah. So I want to talk about what's behind you right now. Uh, this beautiful I don't... thing. Yeah. So this is actually not my thing. So this is, uh, this is, we've rented a house for a week. It's my oh birthday my in two days. So we thought, oh. we thought yeah. we don't want to gather any people because we're still in lockdown. We wanted to just kind of like escape somewhere and still just be the family. So I'm actually, I'm sitting in a house that, that is not our own. So I don't, I, it's, a do you born... take, do you take all the art off the walls and then pee on it just to be like, <laughs> This has been claimed. Well, I wanted to ask you because you said you started painting or, yeah. or that you started making work. So yeah. what is that? What has that? What's it? What is that experience like right now for you? Is it any different? I have no idea what a uh, painting practice would look like, you know, when you could see people versus when you can't. Yeah. I don't know if there's a big shift there. 
No, I mean, the, the thing is, I mean, I constantly work anyways. Yeah, so, I mean, I'm in my studio, whether I have a show ahead or not. It's also about like just actively uh, keeping your practice kind of alive. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, it's it's a lot of that. But the reality, I mean, what I mean that I'm kind of like working is is that I'm I'm actually kind of making uh, plans for next year and the following year. So, I mean, that's the also kind of thing is that I've never had to look so far in in the future and or and like in what I want to do or what I want what kind of projects I want to work on. So it's it's also not only practically making work it's also kind of sitting and contextualizing what you want to do uh who you want to work with and the reality and this is actually a fun thing that i've realized in this pandemic is that because of this kind of forced pause it's also kind of like forced me into a corner of like wanting to like really make up for the last time so i want to make huge work i want to make huge shows i want to do like these massive collaborations and this is really where where i am now in my frame of mind and i don't think i've ever been there I mean, I've always, I've always appreciated this kind of like Swedish mellow mentality of, you know, you create a small kind of work that is like in conversation with ideally one person and, and it's, it, the message is mellow or the image, like there, there is something that's always come with me in, in my work that is that. And then obviously I moved to America and like every, every studio visit I would have, they would just be like, this is great, but just make it really big. Like, <laughs> like this typical American experience. And I just kind of laughed for six months thinking, do you mean physically large, physically large? Like it was like, it was, there were that actual is so collectors funny. thinking that like, just make it big. That is so <laughs> funny. Of course that's true. I just, I've. <laughs> But you would think, I mean, growing up in Europe, you would think that is like the typical thing you would think about America. But then also the fact that that's the first thing that comes out of like these collectors mouth. And it was, there were like three in a row. And I just thought, this is not a joke. This is for real. Like, I thought I was just making no, fun that... of America from afar. And then like, actually, no. <laughs> um, so like, truly, if you're sh like, if y the work that you make, just speaking in like dimensions, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. are you saying that American collectors are asking for like, like, what's the difference? I'm just no, so curious. I, I mean, I kid like, you not. I mean, I, if, if, if I, if I, no, I mean, it's, it's, you know, also European collectors, you know, they, I, I would say they buy a piece at a time. I, I feel like Americans, which is right. like, I mean, it's great for us. I mean, they walk in and they buy 10 pieces or they try to buy up a whole show. I mean, there's a different mentality in also spending. It's just perfectly American. Uh, that is perfectly American. That's so it funny. Is, I mean, it's, 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 a, I think the biggest cultural clash I've had was, was really, I mean, moving from, from London to LA and, and London, I mean, the UK is still not being too far from American mentality. I mean, it's, 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 uh, I'm not talking, you know, Azerbaijan or Syria here. It's like, it's, 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 it's very, I didn't think it would be such a big leap in a way. And there are a lot of like, I mean, cultural clashes here that I also had to kind of accept. I mean, I, I'm, I have a very dry, very ironic humor. I love irony. I thrive on it. Like I, I'm ironic with like a one-year-old baby that is my own all the time. And I'm just thinking, I hope, I hope this resonates at some point, but it doesn't with <laughs> Americans. Like Americans just immediately get offended. And every single time I mean, I'm, 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 I am at core extremely pol politically correct. That's also why I like claim irony as like the best language to ever, ever like give you a political point of view or give you, give you any kind of, um, thought or anything. And Americans just don't, they don't get it. They just stop and go and like, wow, that was, that's really rude. You know, they just kind of stop and they oh just God. stop the conversation and there's this awkward kind of silence. And there's been so many times and I kid you not, Ricky loves this every time he just kind of laughs with me, goes like, you are killing it right now. <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> Well, I'm not really meaning to. I'm, I'm just saying this is like my kind of like language. And and I think it's like cultural clashes like that are just a constant, which is, you know, I can navigate them better now. But but it's it's I don't know. Do you agree? Well, I, I just was going to say that this is very this is super interesting for me to hear because one of the most difficult places I've ever played is actually London, like no as a way. comic, um, because Many places export, you know, one of our biggest exports as a country are, is entertainment. So, like, I've performed in South Africa or 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 Dublin and had um, 
a positive experience because the folks there were like steeped in American culture. They had their own culture too, but they like watch our movies. But in London, um, everybody is very, my experience has been that American entertainment is, um, people have a shittier view of of American entertainment in London. (laughs) And so when you come over as a comic using our references, even like something like Cadence, like the first time I ever performed in London at the time in the US, what everybody was doing was telling these huge, long stories that pay off with like one punchline at the very end. And I went on stage and I tried to do that. And I literally, the audience was like, we don't understand what's going on. And, you know, basically blacked out by the time there was supposed to be a joke. And then the comic after me was somebody who was very renowned in one of the times she crushed and she got off stage and she said, like, what's your joke per minute ratio? And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, that's not anything. Cause she was, she would have a laugh every like 10 to 15 seconds. Oh, wow. And people were, people were, anyway, it's very specific. And anyway, um, <laughs> it still is one of the most difficult places to perform because it's, everybody's, it's... everybody's, so I hadn't thought that like visual art would have I sometimes I get jealous of like a musician where I'm like you could play anywhere and everyone would love it because they don't have to get the joke but like visual arts very interesting to hear that there's a huge culture clash but there I mean it's it's also I mean I I speak to also like my my, I mean my assistant and who's who's like perfectly like American and also my publicist here and I always like when I describe my work I speak of materiality a lot I mean I, I kind of go deep into the process of painting because it's also like what I I mean, it's I, I am a painter, but more than that, I kind of work around the concept of painting. Uh, so, like, I like to reveal and work with materials of the paint and painting that you wouldn't normally expect to see, whether it's the stretcher bar frame or or the choice of medium. I mean, if it's oil paint compared to acrylic paint, which is kind of plastic or um, so, I mean, I kind of engulf myself in this conversation where I use material as like a focal point in discussing anything, whether it's belonging or politics or any form in, in portrayal. And and I remember my publicist here would say like, but you know what, it's, it's actually, it's the most European thing in you is that you don't really speak a materiality like that at all in America. Like you speak in different kind of terms, like you kind of bring... I can't remember what it was, but she 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 just pointed commercialism? out commercialism. I don't know. <laughs> no, no, I, w- I wouldn't say that either. I'm, no, I'm not going to go that like, route that hard. I, but like it's 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 like one of those. It's uh, she just felt it was so perfectly. It's like a European standard of like meticulously discussing mm. finer details in something. And I just think, but this is I haven't really thought of it. This is this is my practice. This is what it's based on. This is how I portray things. And she said, yeah, it's not really a language that translates so much in America. We can use this word or that word instead, still say the same thing, but it's just not. And it's it's I mean, it's super interesting. I mean, I still think it's great. I've, I mean, I'm learning so much by being here and and learning. I mean, this is what I mean also when I'm thinking of grander scales and bigger shows and bigger things. It's also, I mean, I think it's like a, it's like a gift of, of, um, of, of this country in a way, teaching me to, to think um, larger or bigger or actually almost larger than myself because my art is very much a personal experience and in a way very self-reflective. And now rather than, almost constantly looking inwards. I'm also kind of looking outwards. And I think that's, that's, that's a great thing. I think it's a good thing in it. Um, also comparing with Ricky, I mean, he's a pop artist with huge crowds. I mean, that, that also gives me a form of perspective of, yeah, I work in a completely different field, but it can also be grand scale. It doesn't always yeah. have to be, but it could be. And I think, I think it's a, again, I'm like being positive about this, like, about this yeah, move in a way, I mean, but it, it is, I mean, there, there are benefits in it that, that I'm like trying to understand rather than being like, I don't want to build, I don't want to paint big or whatever with your kind of commercialized ideas of things. And, but yeah. I, I'm also curious then how your identity is spoken about in different cultures as it relates to your work. Like if you're doing an interview here in the U S versus somewhere else, do people 
does everybody always bring up that you're a gay man? Do you always bring up that you're a gay man? Like how much, how much of that is spoken about when you're in the visual arts? Cause for me, it's just like, there's, it's, it's all part of the whole same thing. Yeah. Um, curious. That's actually, like that, for you. that's actually a really interesting question. I mean, I feel, I feel in Sweden, I mean, I did like this, a bunch of interviews with my last show there. I mean, uh, and, and the questions, were more related to me being an immigrant also because I'm from Sweden and an immigrant in Sweden. And the question of like being gay was never brought up ever. I mean, maybe like my, 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 my relation to Ricky and my marriage to Ricky, but it it wasn't like they wouldn't contextualize around, around my practice and my homosexuality so much more so than my, uh, my kind of my, my background as a, as a foreigner or, or an immigrant, um, here in America, it is, I mean, it is more of a subject. I feel like it's, it's, uh, America is also a lot more polarized. I mean, it's, 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 you mm-hmm. kind of look at things black and white, you know, it's, it's, I'm going to be, I mean, to be fully frank, I believe in a grayscale and everything. I mean, I am a gay man and I claim it also because I've, you know, never slept with a woman and I don't really have that interest, but also I don't want to, I want to, I want to look at sexuality as a grayscale rather than black and white, rather than you are or you are not. I mean, sex and sexuality is extremely complex and, and it can be rooted in so many different experiences and, and, and thoughts and frame of minds. And I can sometimes even feel that, that, you know, gay men can also kind of be forced into that box, uh, even though they can, they could maybe be a little bit in between. Um, and I feel that's more so here in America, where you have to kind of claim that that sexuality and you have to kind of right. own it and become it. Whilst I think from more, I mean, when I say from where I come from, I'm not really representing all of Sweden or definitely not Syria. You know, it's... it's uh, you don't but, say, yeah. But, but it's, it's, I can actually give you a really fun example. I had, I had a great Palestinian friend who came to Sweden and he had this perfect, like Middle Eastern gay experience where like, since he was like 13, he had like all these like gay sex relations with very closeted friends and gay men. And then he moved to, he was in Palestine and then he moved to Jordan and he had the same thing there. And then he was in the Emirates and like, like he was just having sex left to right, like so much, but nobody ever spoke about it. And when he came to Sweden, he was like, finally, I can be gay and be open and do everything I want to do. And he was like, John, it's so surreal. Like in the Middle East, I was being the gayest I could be. I was having sex more than anybody could have sex, but nobody spoke about it. And then I come to Sweden. He's like, nobody has sex, but everybody talks gay rights. And he's like, what the fuck is this? Like, it's, it's, it's more of, it's more of a theoretical existence than actually like a practical one. And I mean, I thought it was such a fun kind of approach to it. Also, I mean, very different one from what we, what we also, in a way, are free to kind of do. I mean, it's, I wouldn't change anything of what I can do here and now. Uh, and the same thing back in Sweden. I mean, I could never live this way, at least not now, in Syria, and not this openly. So, I mean, it's, it's, also, it's also, you know, thanks to time and place. I mean, I can speak like this yeah. because of that. I mean, some of what you're talking about is also the sort of inherent sexiness that comes with taboo. Right. Like, because in all of our sexualities, a part of it is what do we find taboo? And then how do we like butt up against that? You know, that's like, that's always part of it. And so I had the experience of when I first came out, I was in college and I could not come out at the college that I was at. And I will just say that, like, not that (laughs) I'm not looking at it and going like, so have that experience because it's the hottest sex you'll ever have. But it's more so just that, like, over time as sex became part of just humanity, like as I wasn't constantly sobbing after having sex, no. as it was just like part of integrated into my life, it's, it makes it, um, you know, nuance is like, nuance is difficult. Like if, if you can just have sex, but sometimes you're tired, you know, if it's not like, if the motivation isn't like, I've got to do this now because I'll never have this chance again. (laughs) If it's just like, no, we live together and it's kind of safe and fine. That creates a whole other experience with sex where it's, you know, and, and I think it's, I think that stuff is, is, um, definitely stuff we don't talk about a lot 
No. Because I think as a community, we don't ever want to hold up oppression as positive, right? Nobody no. wants to be like, no. so we should go back in time. But it's just an interesting thing to have to, you know, walk through in your life. There's a time when everything's like, you know, very sexy and off the table. And then there's a time when things are just kind of real. And like, yeah. you know, people are, you know, whatever, people are sick, people need NyQuil. It's like just, it's the, it's the real, it's the, it's the more normalized version of things. Yeah. And it's a very different experience with, with sex. Yeah. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I also want to ask you a question. Um, and we're, and this might actually be our last question. So mm -hmm. oof. Mm -hmm. the good news is it's a good one. Um, something that you just said, I like loved to hear from you. You were talking about the grayscale of your own sexuality. And I don't, something that drives me nuts is that oftentimes when we speak like this is like meta large large scope stuff you talk about um you know if there if there is a conversationally there is a binary between men and women although we know that that's not necessarily true in terms of gender but when we talk about women um we talk about a fluidity of sexuality or like a haziness or different phases in life and obviously we never talk about that with gay men. It's like a much more siloed identity. And I just heard you say something that felt a little bit like that when you were talking about the grayscale. And is that what you mean? Is that what you're talking about? Like not necessarily having to claim um, an identity that means you're always one thing in every situation. But I think, I think this is the kind of thing of fluidity. I mean, I speak, I think you could... <laughs> I mean, we can, we can go into Freud and the whole shebang. I mean, it's, it's, you can go as deep as you like with specifically sexuality. And I feel sexuality itself is almost more complex than, than speaking of like a form of duality in a person or, hmm. or being able to, to, you know, being fluid in like, I can be this, I can be Swedish, I can be Arab, I can be, I can be a gay man, I can, I can seduce a woman if I want. I mean, there's, I think there's a fine line in, in, in trying to understand sexuality. And this is also why I speak of a grayscale, because it is, I still don't fully understand it. And I think in, in, in accepting that fact, I also, I think I like humbly try to be like, I am a gay man out of experience, but I don't necessarily believe that I have to be for the rest of my life. I've been super attracted to women. If I've been sexually attracted to women, no. But but there has been points where I felt like this could maybe become something. Um, so so I mean, I don't know if that's answering that question. It is. It's a great I, answer. I, I, th I, think, I think it's I'm, a very I'm flying good answer. off a little bit, but like, yeah, maybe. No, it's good. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good. I thought that was. A, I think that's like a very helpful and awesome way to. Um, way to end the conversation. I'm glad. But, yeah. And <laughs> the final thing I want to do before you go back into your life and your birthday week is ask you to shout out a queero. And that is a person, place, or thing that made you feel like you could be who you are today. Can be, oh my God. Yeah, anybody or anything that opened your heart. I mean, it's, it's probably the most stereotypical gay thing, but I will claim it. Uh, it's, it's, uh, I would say Tom of Finland, which is, I mean, Oh my God. Actually, we've never had that on the show. Oh, For I'm some so reason, happy. we've I, never had, I don't know why that is. We just haven't. I, yeah, keep going. I, I feel like maybe that would have been the most typical thing to say. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's like, it's a pretty juvenile experience. I mean, I was, I was a kid and I remember I had like, I had found this like straight porn mag from somewhere and I was like just just browsing like going through the pages and I was just like oh okay and then there was this tiny tiny little ad for like a Tom of Finland book or something and it was like a Tom of Finland figure in like a Christmas like Santa Claus outfit putting a boot on but it, I tell you it was like it was like an inch by an inch like it was the, like the tiniest picture in this gigantic porn magazine and I thought wow fuck that is it and I remember it was like a slap in the face of like, I don't know what that is, but it's, it's doing something. And, and ever since, I mean, this was like back in the nineties. So like, it wasn't as easy getting these kind of like images or finding this kind of like image sources or understanding what that, I didn't even know what it was called. Um, 
but obviously, you know, I grew up in my twenties and like, I got a lot more access to that kind of stuff and, and it was great. But a funny thing with that is that last year, uh, I actually got to show at the Thomas Finland Foundation. In oh my God, cool. There. So oh, it was like so a cool. circle complete in my like biggest gay fantasy. Uh, and it was, it was pretty brilliant. So yeah, I mean, I, that's I, awesome. I, I think that would be it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I will say, uh, speaking of grayscale, like I'm a, I mean, I understand that we're, that like body objectification has its own set of fucked up things to unpack. But I truly think that Tom of Finland is incredibly hot. <laughs> I really yeah. love the drawings. Yeah, and I really love the drawings because like, it is so fun to, I mean, truly to like objectify a body that we don't usually get a chance to have that experience with. Like those bodies are beautiful, at, you know, and also other bodies are beautiful, but like, I just, yeah. Like, like Tom I, Finland I, really works for me and I hear you. <laughs> I got to throw in a quick thing then because he did actually a few drawings of women in those kind of like series. I don't know if you've seen them and they're so no. hysterical. They're like Amazon women. Like they're just like <laughs> ginormous. They got like, they got like vavulvas that are like the size yeah. of like, dicks. It's, but they're really hot. They're actually, they're still like, they're really attractive women, like from a gay cool. man's perspective. So check them out. You'll love them. I will. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I totally will. And Juan, this was, it was so nice to talk with you. And you too, Cameron. You have so such nice. a beautiful vibe and I loved, I loved speaking with you. Oh, likewise. Thank you for this. Thank you.